With the U.S. and Russia signing an agreement on the control of serious chemical weapons, has the prospect of war been eliminated? If the chemical weapons threat has been fabricated, then what are the obstacles to a unilateral U.S. attack? Could the actual rationale for regime change have less to do with humanitarianism than it does with Syria's public banking system? And is Canada taking a moral stand with regard to Syria and its chemical weapons, or is its role more cynical than that? Over the next hour, we'll dig deeper into the developing situation in Syria with researcher and anti-war campaigner Rick Rosoff, attorney and author Ellen Hodgson Brown, and writer and researcher Eve Engler. On today's show, Syria Gambit, Part 2, Why War is Still on the Table. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 19, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. As predicted days before the UN Syria chemical weapons report was made public, the West has begun spinning the findings to bolster their faltering narrative regarding alleged chemical weapon attacks on August 21, 2013, in eastern Damascus, Syria. The goal, of course, is to continue demonizing the Syrian government while simultaneously sabotaging a recent Syrian-Russian deal to have Syria's chemical weapon stockpiles verified and disarmed by independent observers. A barrage of suspiciously worded headlines attempt to link in the mind of unobservant readers the UN's confirmation of chemical weapons use in Syria and Western claims that it was the Syrian government who used them. The UN report confirms the chemical weapons were used, a point that was not contended by either side of the conflict before or after the UN investigation began. What the West is attempting to now do is retrench its narrative before the or after the UN investigation began. What the West is attempting to do now do is retrench its narrative behind the report and once again create a baseless justification for continued belligerent against Syria. That was from the article Five Lies Invented to Spin UN Report at Syrian chemical weapons attack by Tony Cartolucci, post September 17th, originally posted in the Land Destroyer blog. Human gene therapy has been ongoing since 1990, but most of that involved non-heritable genes called somatic or non-sex cell gene therapy. 
somatic modifications only affect the individual and are not passed on and so do not affect the human genome. The game changed when the successful birth of at least 30 genetically modified babies by 2001. As with genetically modified crops, a host of unforeseen and deleterious consequences may develop when we begin modifying humans with genes their children will inherit. But another argument against germline modification is that it will lead to designer babies and a new class of underdogs, those who cannot afford genetic enhancement. That's from Genetically Modified Babies by Rady Ananda, posted September 18th. The President of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, announces publicly the creation of a world internet system independent from U.S. and Britain, the U.S.-centric internet. Not many understand that while the immediate trigger for the decision, coupled with the cancellation of a summit with the U.S. president, was the revelations on NSA spying, the reason why Rousseff can take such a historic step is that the alternative infrastructure, the BRICS cable, from Vladivostok, Russia, to Shantou, China, to Chennai, India, to Cape Town, South Africa, to Fortaleza, Brazil, is being built and it's actually in its final phase of implementation. No amount of provocation and attempted springs, destabilizations and color revolutions in the Middle East, Russia or Brazil can stop this progress. Brazil plans to develop itself from the US-centric internet over Washington's widespread online spying, a move that many experts fear will be potentially dangerous first step toward politically fracturing a global network built with minimal interference by governments. President Dilma Rousseff has or ordered a series of measures aimed at greater Brazilian online independence and security following revelations that the U.S. National Security Agency intercepted her communications, hacked into the state-owned Petrobras oil company network, and spied on Brazilians who entrusted their personal data to U.S. tech companies such as Facebook and Doodle. That's from the BRICS Independent Intersection Cable in Defiance of the U.S.-Centric Internet by Umberto Pascali, posted September 17th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. Over the last few weeks, we've seen increasing tensions around Syria, the United States reacting to the chemical gas attack of August 21st, which crossed Obama's red line, and then efforts being made to form an international coalition to launch strikes against Syria. The UK rejected military action before the UN investigators completed their work, and then chemical weapons was continues to be expressed as the reason for these strikes. However, the United States has struck a recent deal with Russia that would involve seeing chemical weapons placed under the control of the international community. So has, has this truly forestalled or even eliminated the prospect of uh, regime change in Syria? Well, to join us to talk about where things sit with regard to Syria 
and a um, whether or not we've resolved the situation there is Rick Rosoff, who is a, a longtime campaigner against war, militarism, and intervention. Uh, he lives and works in Chicago. He manages the Stop NATO email list and website and is a frequent contributor to Voice of Russia and globalresearch.ca. So thank you very much for joining us, Rick Rosoff. Uh, thank you, Michael, for having me back on the show. Okay, so uh, what do you make of the, the events of the last little while? Do you, do you believe that uh, somehow the, the threat uh, against Syria has been eliminated now that this whole chemical weapons situation is uh, under control? Uh, no, I don't believe the threat's been eliminated. I think you wisely, at the, in your introduction, uh, talked about the, uh, the threat being forestalled or eliminated. It has been forestalled. Uh, I think we quite uh, possibly would have seen a large-scale U.S. and allied military strikes against Syria a week ago, a week and a half ago, perhaps two weeks ago, uh, had it not been for the prompt and, uh, you know, in many ways seemingly fortuitous intervention of, of Russia uh, when it stepped in and, and uh, claimed it would have uh, offered, rather, to assist the government in Syria to uh, eliminate uh, whatever stockpiles of uh, chemical weapons uh, Damascus has. Uh, that certainly forestalled it. Now, what we're looking at is, you know, depending on which metaphor we want to use, Michael, either a, uh, you know, very tense uh, chess game or a series of horizontal chess games going on simultaneously as chess masters, you know, frequently engage in, uh, or a tragedy that is entering, uh, you know, its fourth act and perhaps approaching the climax, but we don't quite yet know, uh, you know, what, what the uh, the ultimate outcome is going to be, what the denouement is going to be. So what we do know for a fact is this, that uh, the United States and its military allies, and we have to recall that when you did mention also in your introduction or allude to the fact that the United States has been trying to assemble a new coalition of the willing, if you will, uh, you know, much like those used in 1991 in the attack against Iraq and in 2003 in the invasion of Iraq, and that uh, last turn, the U.S. claimed it had uh, some 33 nations on board. If you look at who those countries are, they're almost in a, invariably a NATO, full NATO members or members of NATO military partnership programs like the Mediterranean Dialogue in North Africa and the Middle East, the Istanbul Cooperation um, Initiative in the Persian Gulf, and uh, one of the eight Asian Pacific uh, nations that are, are now in um, NATO's new partnership partners across the globe. So it was hardly a representative sampling of the 194 nations in the United Nations. Uh, and likewise, or similarly, uh, when you mentioned the you know, chemical weapons issue being resolved, unfortunately it has not been. Uh, the United States and France, and you know, presumably with Britain, all three permanent members of the Security Council, are trying to bring the chemical weapons issue up in the Security Council under a Chapter 7 heading in the United Nations, which would permit and with the Western nations had their way, Michael would obligate uh, the Security Council to authorize military force against Syria at uh, you know at any point at which the U.S. and its allies, U.S. and France and its allies, determine Syria to be non-compliant uh, with UN demands about. Um, 
turning over chemical weapons and having them um, uh, neutralized. So that the threat is still very real. Uh, we see as recently as today, there's an Associated Press report going around as of the last hour, so that the last two uh, heads of the U.S. Pentagon, Leon Panetta and Robert Gates, uh, you know, both spoke on the Syria issue with uh, Panetta stating, and this is a man until recently was head of the mightiest military in, in history, uh, stating that Obama should have gone ahead anyhow and bombed Syria. This is former CIA director and most recently defense uh, 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 secretary. So there's still, you know, sizable sectors of the ruling elite in the United States and the West as a whole who are champing at the bit for an opportunity of, uh, you know, launching a military onslaught against Syria. Mm. Now, I, uh, you, of course, brought up the example of uh, the 2003 uh, efforts to build a coalition of the willing to go into Iraq, and I, I'm so reminded of that because, as I recall, in 2002, I think U.S. forces were set to go into Iraq the fall of 2002, but they got sort of forestalled with this uh, gambit. To, we got to send in the weapons inspectors, and so there's this whole rigmarole about the weapons inspectors going into Iraq. And I, I think those of us who've kind of observing the U.S. for some time, they kind of like they they they're not really they're going to find some excuse for going into Iraq. So the, the weapons inspectors. Uh, you know, they they did their thing, but it, it had the appearance, especially in in hindsight, of, of being just a, a charade. Uh, but at any rate, it does seem as if that there was the postponement postponement of the inevitable, as they kind of get their you know diplomatic uh, you know set up uh, all in a row. And I, I'm wondering if we aren't observing that same sort of situation now. They're they're kind of um, hogtied uh, in terms of their rhetoric and 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 their uh, you know, diplomatic initiatives, but uh, somehow they're going to find some way of uh, finding the excuse they need to, to go into Syria, right? That's an astute analogy. It's one I would not have thought of. I, I frankly have forgotten about. Um, you know, the last-ditch effort, I guess, to try to legitimize the inevitable uh, military aggression against Iraq uh, a decade ago by first, you know, seeming to, uh, you know, play ball with the United Nations and with an inspections regime. Uh, so that what we're seeing, in essence, is, uh, you know, the equivalent thereof. But, you know, it, uh, historians, I'm sure, we you know, will have plenty of opportunity of reflecting on what has and has not happened in the last three weeks. And, uh, you know, maybe the major uh, item uh, they'll focus on is... Uh, whether the U.S. wasn't anticipated, uh, perhaps by a matter of days, if not hours, meaning that uh, Barack Obama's speech of uh, two Tuesdays ago, uh, you know, was clearly designed, uh, you know, in advance to have been uh, the announcement to the nation and the world that he was taking military action, perhaps that he had already begun that military action. You know, the launching of several hundred cru uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles from the eastern Mediterranean comes to mind immediately, uh, and that he may have been preempted, in fact, as you're alluding to, you know, by the Russian diplomatic initiative. Um, Otherwise, uh, you know, the U.S. I think was prepared. Oh, I am certain was prepared to, uh, you know, go at uh, out, uh, go at Syria outside of a mandate from the United Nations, from the Security Council, based on U.S. reports. You know, so, uh, allegedly irrefutable evidence that the, the government of Syria had used uh, chemical weapons in a suburb of Damascus on August 21st. And then when we, when we look closer into this, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners have done, Michael, uh, you know, intercepted phone calls, uh, ostensibly perhaps a cell phone. I don't know. Uh, the trajectory of a rocket uh, heading in that direction, anything but uh, definitive or even reputable. 
uh, you know, claims, uh, you know, by the United States. But when the United Nations investigation team um, did release their information in the last couple of days, and it's still my contention that the U.S. planned to initiate military hostilities against Syria prior to the, re the release of the United Nations uh, report, uh, because the report would not have been as unequivocal. It may, in fact, have been very unfriendly uh, to U.S. Uh, war contentions. And we now know, as of today, that the Russian government is prepared to present evidence to the Security Council uh, attributing the uh, you know, chemical weapons use to the rebels. Mm -hmm. to the, the U.S.-backed uh, insurgents, uh, f uh, domestic and foreign, uh, bent on overthrowing the uh, government in Damascus and affecting the regime change you alluded to in your introduction. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the U.S. presumably knows that this isn't about chemical weapons. The Russians know it isn't about chemical weapons. Uh, and uh, no doubt uh, a lot of the U.N. officials uh, and, and leaders around the world know that there's another game being played that's not related to, uh, you know, the, the official rhetoric around this. So, um, I guess, w what are your thoughts about uh, the, you know, why it is necessary to, uh, to, to conceive this uh, rhetoric, why, why we can't be a little bit more direct? If Are we, like, is the U.S. really uh, constrained by... Uh, by this, these sorts of diplomatic uh, maneuvers? I mean, don't, don't they have the power to go ahead anyway? That's a good question. My immediate assumption is yes. Uh, I mean, no, they are not constrained, and yes, they have the power, certainly, and, and the desire uh, to go ahead otherwise. So it does beg the question, I think, is your... Um, you know, you're mentioning the then why not, right? You know, why has the U.S. not gone ahead anyhow? As it, uh, you know, is proven, as a track record of scorning world public opinion when it chooses to. And uh, this would simply be one more uh, incident of, uh, you know, reckless brigandage around the world. And as the U.S. has not been held accountable for any of the previous ones, why for this? Uh, and I've asked myself that question, as I'm sure many of us have. Uh, and I'm not quite certain. Unless, you know, there's a statement today by uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, uh, you know, thanking Russia for its support, uh, diplomatic and presumably more than simply diplomatic. And, you know, the uh, Novosti, the Russian Information Agency, Novosti account of that, uh, paraphrasing his comments, state that uh, Russia's move is contributed to, and this is, you know, a paraphrase of Assad's comments, uh, a new balance of power in the world. And I don't know to what extent, we can only speculate, but that uh, what has happened with the U.S., at least temporarily backing down, isn't both a reflection of and, um, you know, a, a revela and a, an assertion of that new balance of power in the world. That is, U.S. may sense that with uh, Russian and, and uh, Chinese opposition to military strikes against uh, Syria being as firm as uh, longstanding and as un, you know undeviating uh, as they've been, that the U.S. is up against something a little stronger than they were in past uh, uh, efforts like uh, the wars against Libya, Iraq, Yugoslavia, and uh, and others over the last 14 years. There are reports that uh, some of your listeners may have seen. I've seen more than one account of it. Is is that China is deploying naval vessels to the eastern Mediterranean, which may be the first time they've ever done this, and these are war ships. Uh, in addition to the you know in, uh, now uh, permanent Russian military, uh, the presence of Russian uh, navy in the eastern Mediterranean, which is increasing in size. So, you know, these may be uh, you know indications that the U.S. cannot work its will with complete impunity, and that it's coming up against an emerging new world order, which is multipolar. 
uh, and that will, uh, you know, I think most countries in the world are either bribed or intimidated or some combination of the two and will vote very dutifully with the United States, both in the Security Council and in the General Assembly at the United Nations. But it only takes uh, a couple of permanent members like Russia and China and maybe a handful of other countries in the world to say, uh, no, you know, thus far, no farther. And that, uh, you know, no uh, further uh, acts of military aggression against sovereign nations will be tolerated. And it could be through back channel and other communication that the U.S. is aware of the fact that it's run up against a, uh, a brick wall with Russia in the first place. Of course, Russia and China working jointly. Uh, and, you know, standing behind them, perhaps. We have to remember the recently concluded uh, summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, issued statements, you know, quite clearly opposing uh, any foreign military intervention in Syria. And this is an organization which, through its members, its observers, and its dialogue partners, uh, you know, accounts for well over half of the human race. Mm. Now, um, I know that uh, the Israel lobby has been lobbying very aggressively the, the U.S. Congress to support this uh, a, a military intervention in Syria. Uh, could you maybe explain where Israel fits in this whole geopolitical mess? Well, I think there's a question of exactly where it stands geopolitically vis-a-vis -vis Syria, uh, as distinct from where the Israeli government is, what the Israeli government is willing to publicly acknowledge is, you know, are its interests. Uh, we do know from uh, reports uh, prior to, uh, you know, the Russian intervention and the postponement, at least, of the uh, planned U.S. and Allied attack against Syria, that the largest pro-Israel uh, political action committee, even though it's not licensed or registered as a political action committee, the uh, American-Israel uh, Public Affairs Council, APEC, uh, had deployed over 300, this you know, mainstream media reports in the United States, had deployed over 300 lobbyists to Capitol Hill to really put the pressure on, uh, not so much uh, you know, members of the Senate to being a majority Democratic uh, by party affiliation or I guess assumed to be safe and you know, voting for war, but in the House, you know, in Congress. Uh, House of Representatives to put the pressure, but good. And of course, all 435 members of the House are up for re-election uh, next year. So this is, you know, a time where APAC could do them a lot of harm. Uh, and, you know, but for uh, the U.S. either taking advantage of the Russian proposition, again, depending on how one wants to interpret this, taking advantage of it or being stymied by it, uh, also prevented what would, would have been, you know, ultimately the, uh, uh, you know, a showdown between APAC and, and uh, the majority of congressmen in the House who were against military action. And uh, with what results, I can't say. Uh, you know, APAC wields a pretty uh, formidable bludgeon, and uh, any congressman who wanted to return to the Hill next year, or the uh, January following next year, uh, you know, would have had to thought uh, uh, long and hard about how he or she was going to cast a vote on that issue if they had APAC uh, arraigned, arranged against, arraigned against them. Um, now, this may be a bit of speculation on your part, but uh, do you see Israel, because I, I don't know, it, it doesn't seem like it's, I mean, apart from that, that behind-the-scenes lobbying, uh, we're not hearing very much uh, from Israel with regard to uh, the uh, Syria situation uh, on the ground, but I, I'm wondering, do you see Israel somehow being resurrected as being a, uh, some sort of a trigger for another, for an actual attack that that might derail this, uh, you know, this whole uh, chemical weapons 
diplomatic fiasco we're on, that's underway right now? That's a hard one to call. Uh, we do know that Turkey shot down a Syrian uh, helicopter in recent days, and we know that uh, uh, that Israel has launched military strikes in recent years inside Syria. Some of them with fairly deadly results. So the we cannot eliminate the you know the potential for uh, the U.S., uh, Israel, Turkey, and others launching you know arbitrary testing the waters in many cases. You know maybe uh, to see what the Syrian response is. Also taking advantage of uh, the you know under understandable preoccupation with the government in Syria with the internal, um, you know, conflict and crisis uh, so as to allow, uh, you know, Israel to fish in muddied waters. Uh, Israeli military, the Israeli military is still in the Golan Heights. Uh, Israel still has an overwhelming military superiority in the Middle East. I mean, comparable, uh, just, there's no uh, comparison between its military, including uh, strategic as well as conventional uh, capability and all the other nations of the Middle East combined. So we have those factors, but we have to remember that roughly 13 months ago, a little bit more, the uh, Israeli ambassador of the United Nations, Ron Prozor, Prozor you know, made a particularly provocative statement about uh, Syria uh, using chemical weapons, saying he doesn't doubt that a government as ruthless as Adenbeg in Damascus would uh, do so without any hesitation. And this is, you know, a full more than a year, you know, before the the events of August 31st of uh, this year. So that it almost suggests that Israel has been poised to exploit uh, weapons of mass destruction issue, chemical weapons issue again. Uh, you know, as it had earlier with uh, Iraq, as we talked about a decade ago. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, uh, who knows? I mean, the Israeli government may figure that having a, uh, you know, post-Assad, uh, post-secular jihadi state, or not even state, but a state of chaos, indeed, in Syria, you know, should the rebels be successful, might not be altogether in Israel's interest. But their uh, former uh, Israeli official was quoted, I think, not um, um, out of character with what may be the dominant feeling in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, uh, which is that uh, the best-case scenario may be for the government of Syria and the various rebel ensembles uh, to just uh, whittle, whittle away at each other in a war of attrition. Uh, the word I've heard was, you know, hemorrhage. And that to have that go on indefinitely at, you know, what, who knows what human cost to the uh, Syrian people uh, is a... Uh, consequence, uh, you know, Israeli stra- strategists may be willing to live with. Mm. Now, uh, I, I no doubt you're you're pleased with the way uh, Russia's. Uh, I mean, the the military strikes have not yet happened, largely due to the efforts of the Russians. But I guess we have to remind ourselves that uh, there's a lot at stake for Russia uh, if uh, if there is some sort of a regime change in Syria. Do you want to maybe help explain those stakes for us? Sure, and I would have to say that I'm I'm not entirely pleased with uh, the level of Russian uh, intervention, uh, simply to uh, you know forestall an attack. And your, your choice of verbs uh, was was correct, of course. Uh, you know to postpone rather than to definitively eliminate such a prospect uh, by having uh, Syria effectively capitulate and uh, A, acknowledge that they they have a chemical weapons arsenal, as I'm sure Israel does, incidentally, and uh, two, that they will join the uh, convention on the, on the uh, you know, on chemical weapons and uh, destroy their arsenal, uh, in many ways is comparable or analogous to what happened with Iraq earlier, as you alluded to, and uh, Libya, you know, most recently, both of whom eliminated any weapons programs, unconventional weapons programs that the United States took issue with, only to be attacked and invaded and uh, have their governments overthrown and their heads of state killed. 
so that this isn't a victory in and, in and of itself, of course. Uh, what would Russia lose? Enough that I think it could could have taken, even to date, and certainly can from here on in, a much firmer stance. Uh, they have their only uh, naval facility, their only real military facility outside Russia, excepting now in the uh, contiguous newly independent states of South Ossetia and, and uh, Abkhazia. But uh, really speaking, outside of Russia, you know, the naval uh, facility at Tartus on the Mediterranean in Syria. Um, Syria remains of the 22 members of the Arab League, with the U.S. doing some very serious geopolitical, um, you know, remaking, uh, you know, of, of the world in the post-Cold War period. Remains the only one of the 22 members of the Arab League that arguably has close state-to-state -state economic and military uh, relations with Russia. The others have been weaned away from Russia in the post-Cold War period. Um, it is, um, you know, the only uh, major state in the entire Mediterranean Sea basin that is uh, excluding, you know, temporarily Libya. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Lebanon, which, uh, you know, will go the way of Syria, surely, that isn't a U.S. client state and that isn't either a full member of NATO or a member of a NATO military partnership program, with Cyprus now heading towards a partnership for peace and uh, Libya heading towards the Mediterranean dialogue. So geopo geopolitically speaking, uh, Syria is extremely important. I mean, it's, it's um, Russia's anchor in the Mediterranean Sea. And if the government in Syria is overthrown, as the U.S. and its allies intends to happen, uh, Russia is effectively evicted from the Mediterranean Sea. Hmm. Well, these are all very... Uh, uh, well, we'll be watching the, the Syrian situation very carefully over the coming weeks and, and months. And so, um, But uh, help, thank you uh, very much, Rick Rosoff, for, for breaking that situation down, and uh, uh, hopefully you'll join us again. Yeah, thank you for providing a, you know, a format where we can discuss this issue on the, on the various important levels that uh, you and I were able to discuss it on. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Michael. And we've been speaking with Rick Rosoff. Uh, he's a Chicago-based uh, opponent of war, militarism, and intervention, and he manages the Stop NATO email list and website. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada. We are also podcast at globalresearch.ca and air Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. Over the course of the last several months, we've heard a lot of motivations for a possible military strike against Syria, ranging from uh, a drive for oil to humanitarian intervention. But uh, rarely do we hear the perspective that this has something to do with Syria's public banking system. Uh, Ellen Brown is... Uh, is, the, is an attorney, and she's the president of the Public Banking Institute. She's also the author of 12 books, including uh, Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution, which is her latest. And she's going to tell us now about uh, a recent article she wrote in, uh, earlier this month. Uh, Ellen Brown, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Okay, so the name of your article is Wall Street's Secret Economic Endgame, Making the World Safe for Banksters, Syria in the Crosshairs. Now, um, I, can you maybe just guide us a, a little bit about uh, your, your argument here that this is uh, related to Syria's public banking system? Um, 
that what I was writing about there was that um, it was an article that Greg Pallas wrote about um, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner having an exchange in the late 1990s where Geithner was writing to Summers and said, mentioned the financial endgame of the World Trade Organization. And uh, then he gave the private phone numbers of some big Wall Street banker uh, CEOs. And um, so what the end game was, was that um, they wanted to open the world up to derivatives. That The U.S. banks were, um, it, they relaxed the uh, Glass-Steagall, or they got rid of the Glass-Steagall Act, the part of it that prevented investment banking and depository banking in the same bank, you know, commingling those assets. So, so that was lifted, but it had to be lifted globally in order for it to work, because if other countries still had the protections of Glass-Steagall and still had, were regulating their own banks, then um, the investors would flee to those other countries because their investments would be safer, and they wanted to open these other big banks up to, to their whole derivatives scheme, <laughs> which they did, of course. And the way they did it was to to persuade all the members of the World Trade Organization to sign this financial services agreement that did open up all their banks to this sort of financial products, whereas before the World Trade Organization was just basically about trading physical products, you know, our uh, your ban- their bananas for our whatever, our cars or something. Um, but now it included financial products. So that worked. So you mean things like derivatives? Yeah, derivatives, repos. <clears throat> that worked, but um, not everybody's in the World Trade Organization. So there, there are few holdouts, and these are also holdouts from the Bank for International Settlements, and that would include these seven countries that were mentioned by... Um, um, uh, Wesley Clark in a it was a Democracy Now interview around the time of the Iraq War, and he said he had been told after 2001 by a general that we were going to war with these that we would be going to war not just with Iraq but with these seven countries. They're all Islamic and in the in the Middle East area. So it was Iraq, Iran, Libya, um, Syria, Lebanon. Sudan and Somalia. And indeed, you know, that seems to be working out, and they've taken down Iraq, they've taken down Libya, and uh, Iran has been pretty well circled. I mean, it's been boycotted heavily, and Syria is the current big target. Mm. Now, what uh, these uh, countries, like since uh, they've been taken down, like Iraq, for example, Libya, what what has happened to the banking system since those uh, encounters? Well, Libya was particularly interesting. I wrote an article on that, too. Before before they had, the rebels were just supposedly this bunch of ragtag rebels, and they set up a, their own central bank. This was in March of whatever year it was. Was it 20? 2011? 20, 2011? Um, when the, yeah, when they, when they were um, just starting this war. So... That's a pretty sophisticated thing for rebels to do. And so a number of commentators remarked on that, how odd that they were setting up their own bank that seemed to be somebody bigger was uh, 
prodding them on that. And uh, the Libyan Central Bank at that time, Gaddafi was, uh, he was attempting to organize this entire Africa. Uh, it would be the equivalent of the World Trade Organization, but it would be, or the equivalent of the IMF, but it would be the African Monetary Fund. And they would uh, fund uh, projects such as what they had already done in Libya by issuing their own money through their own central bank was to turn the desert green by by bringing the water to the desert, and they were starting to do that elsewhere, and the funding was coming largely from Libya. And, of course, Gaddafi wanted to abandon the dollar and the euro and to um, sell oil in or to sell products generally in this gold-backed currency, the gold dinar. So he was attempting to set up that system in Africa so they'd be independent. And this obviously had to be stopped, and it was stopped. And Iran, or Iraq too, when they first, uh, where they first seemed to get in trouble was when they broke away from selling their oil only in dollars, and they said they were going to sell it in euros as well. Which originally everybody laughed because the euro wasn't wasn't strong, but then it came out to be stronger than the dollar, and and this was also a threat that. The whole when when um, the dollar went off the gold standard under Nixon in 1971, uh, the dollar suddenly dropped, and then there was a big meeting in Sweden of these big financiers, what to do about it, and they decided they would back the dollar with oil, and they this is under the under Kissinger Henry Kissinger met with the Shah of Iran, Iran and they agreed that um, that the OPEC countries would sell their oil only in dollars, and in return, the price of oil was going to be jacked up by, it was quadrupled right after that due to the, that little nine days war. And so all these countries that thought they had enough dollars to buy their oil, suddenly, because the price of oil had gone up by a factor of 400%, they no longer had sufficient money, and so they had to borrow from the Wall Street and London banks, and that put them all in debt to Wall Street and London, and um, and that so that's the system we have now, where all the all these uh, countries globally are in debt to our banks, but there were a few holdouts, and those were the ones that were targeted as rogue states. Well, there's a saying that uh, the, uh, the the debtor is slave to the lender, and, and this is a way essentially of maintaining control over these countries? Is that essentially what we're talking about? Right. In fact, the whole Bank for International Settlements was set up. Um, I, this is what, my new book is The Public Bank Solution. So I, I trace the whole evolution of the Bank for International Settlements. It started in 1912. Uh, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia set up their own central bank that just issued credit for the purposes of the nation, and they did remarkable things. They rebuilt the nation, they, you know, put in roadways and seaways and all sorts of infrastructure, and and they um, financed their participation in World War One without having to borrow from England. And this quite alarmed the Bank of England. The head of the bank uh, went to England and boasted that anything Australians could imagine they could have because they were using their own credit issued by their own bank. So the Bank, bank of 
the city of London was quite alarmed, and that man passed away rather suddenly after that of a heart attack. And uh, and then they put in a new system where the central bank would be would issue the money and lend it to the government rather than the central bank actually being a government bank that just printed the money and issued it for government purposes. So they got so excited about this that they decided to have this system where all the countries, or all the Commonwealth countries, which were their former colonies, but which they were controlling economically by uh, by putting them in debt, that all the former colonies would be set up in this way with a central bank that was supposedly government, but would actually be independent, and it would issue the, the national currency and lend it to the government and lend it to the banks. So that's the system that got set up, and anybody that um, stepped outside of it would uh, tended to get crushed. Mm-hmm. And that became the Bank for International Settlements when the city of London sort of lost. After World War One. Uh, the British didn't have the same financial power that they had before, so they needed the Americans, and they needed... The Bank for International Settlements was really originally set up by four big bankers. It was the U.S., England, France, and Germany. And Germany was in there supposedly because they were the ones that had to pay their reparations to England and France. And, they, I mean, they were supposed to pay everybody's damages from World War One, and they didn't have the money, so they had borrowed from the U.S. to pay under the Dawes plan, and the, there was another plan, I forget, uh, and they paid off. So they were supposed to be paying off their war reparations, but in fact, that put Germany in a key position. It was what you were talking about, the debtor is a <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, servant to the lender. But if you have a really, there, I think that same saying goes something about, but if you have a really big debt, suddenly the debtor is in control. You know, Because, in other words, if you've lent somebody a lot of money, suddenly you want to make sure they do well so that you can get your money back. And so... So the American businesses were all, or the Wall Street businesses were catering to the Germans to make sure they got their money back. Mm. So um, I, I notice uh, one other uh, thing you point out in your article is uh, in terms of Obama's uh, motivation. You, you mentioned that uh, uh, Larry Summers, uh, you know, the person of Larry Summers, has a background with uh, Barack Obama, correct? Yeah, he was the the. Um, Barack Obama's choice for the next Federal Reserve chairman, but he recently um, withdrew his name from the hat, apparently, because he didn't want to get raked over the coals in Congress. It was clear that he was going to take a lot of heat. But this is one of many things that has been brought up against him, was that he was totally instrumental in this uh, opening up the derivatives which then shot up to, it depends on who you look at, but somewhere between $700 trillion and and $1.4 quadrillion uh, shot way up because it's a very lucrative business for the, for the banks, and they've kind of forgotten about lending to um, local businesses because they're more interested in the derivatives now. Mm. Now, uh, I think that many of our listeners are, are familiar with... Um, you know, the, the, the sort of there's been a march um, 
you know, across the 20th century where you'd have one country after another, like in Iran in, the, in 53, Guatemala, Chile, uh, that they're all in, in 73, that uh, they've any efforts to, to nationalize certain industries are, are rewarded by uh, some sort of a, an overthrow. Um, are there any other such you know, state, I mean, you mentioned the state-owned uh, banks in, in Syria and Iran, uh, but are there other assets there that uh, might act as some sort of a, a motivation for uh, overthrow? Well, I know there was, the, in Syria, there's that, um, supposedly there would be an oil line put through to allow um, the oil go, to go directly to Russia, and uh, I'm actually not an expert in the in the oil issues, but I know there are other reasons. Um, but the, I was just pointing out this one as something that nobody's really focused on, and it does tie all those countries together rather suspiciously. Yes, indeed, it seems like too much of a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, Ellen Brown, I really appreciate that uh, that analysis and. Uh, uh, I guess good luck with your, your book, uh, The Public Bank Solution. Oh, and, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Ellen Brown an, an, she is an attorney and president of the Public Banking Institute and the author of a number of books, including her most recent, The Public Bank Solution. As the Syria drama plays out and international players stake their positions on the world stage, where does Canada fit in to the global events as they unfold? To help illuminate Canada's role in the Syria file, we're joined by, from Montreal by writer and researcher Eve Engler. Eve Engler is the author of now eight books, including The Black Book on Canadian Foreign Policy, The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy, and his latest, The New Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World, It Really Is Time to Unite. So thank you very much for joining us, uh, Eve Engler. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, we've heard uh, a lot of uh, uh, pronouncements coming from... uh, the, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Affairs Minister with regard to the, uh, the, uh, the need to uh, you know, contain uh, chemical weapons threat. And I, I know you wrote an article uh, that's uh, posted on your website uh, basically talking about uh, Canada's hypocrisy with regard to uh, you know, making those sorts of statements. So what, uh, maybe you could uh, illuminate what exactly it is that... Uh, Canada's done to perpetuate uh, chemical warfare? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the Conservatives, both Harper and uh, Foreign Minister John Barrett, have in recent days talked about how um, the, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, um, sarin gas, how that is crossing a red line that's uh, a big threat for humanity. John Barrett said it going back to a line that hasn't been crossed since World War One. Um, that's uh, patently false. It would it would obviously be um, good if it was the case, but it's patently false when uh, Canada has been complicit in the use of chemical weapons uh, since you know since World War Two. Um, 
uh, most recently uh, involvement in the actual use of white phosphorus in Afghanistan. Uh, not necessarily, or it's a little bit unclear if it was used on human beings or just or just to uh, eliminate um, uh, 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 actually foliage. Plant, foliage and marijuana plants, specifically, but basically areas that uh, um, uh, apparently Taliban fighters were using to. Uh, to uh, um, hide themselves is, is what the Canadian uh, Army says. Um, uh, also complicit in uh, justifying Israel's use of chemical weapons in Gaza, the Operation Cast Lead, uh, late 2008, early 2009, where 1,400 Palestinians were killed and the, the Harper government uh, cheer-led uh, that Israeli action has had um, no problem with uh, Israel refusing to sign the Chemical Weapons Convention or bi Biological Weapons Convention. Um, but, uh, but the more intense complicity is, is, is historic, and that's uh, um, uh, U.S. military uh, testing uh, chemical weapons, uh, agents orange, uh, blue, uh, uh, purple, in, uh, at CFB Gagetown in, in New Brunswick with the explicit uh, intent uh, according to internal American government documents, to uh, uh, use that in, in, in Southeast Asia and Vietnam, and that the, the, the terrain was similar in New Brunswick as, as the terrain in um, uh, Southeast Asia. And, and uh, that, of course, in, in Vietnam was uh, um, designed to, uh, to uh, um, uh, eliminate foliage and, and, and basically um, uh, drive the National Resistance Forces uh, um, and the peasantry um, uh, into the cities. The one, of, one of the aims, Americans' aim, aim in Vietnam was to drive uh, um, uh, the peasantry out of uh, the countryside where they were, you know, a base of support and, and food supply for, for national resistance forces. Uh, so that's a pretty intense form of complicity. But uh, for decades and decades, Canadian uh, base in Alberta uh, uh, Suffield, uh, major base, is one of the uh, biggest uh, testing grounds of chemical weapons uh, until at least in 1989, Canada had a major stockpile of chemical weapons there, including sarin, the, the, the gas that uh, killed apparently over, over a thousand people in Syria recently. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there's also, you know, going back further historically in terms of uh, the, the war in Korea between 1950 and 1953, when American troops used napalm to wipe out an entire North Korean village, and uh, and the uh, New York Times reported on this uh, devastating uh, uh, situation where this, this whole village was wiped out, and, and and New York Times reported on people who were caught still stuck in dead, but stuck in in the uh, in the position they were in when when the napalm struck, um, uh, Foreign Minister Lester Pearson, uh, or External Affairs Minister at the time, Lester Pearson, uh, he, uh, according to a cable he sent uh, to Canada's ambassador in Washington, uh, he he complained not about what happened, the use of uh, these chemical weapons, but but about the fact that the impact this story might have on public opinion. And he was actually complaining that the American, uh, the, the American censors allowed this story to make it into the paper. Um, so that's a, you know, a pretty intense form of, uh, 
of uh, complicity in 27,000 Canadian troops fighting in the Korean War. So, so there's really the there's just this hypocrisy of what the, the uh, uh, foreign affairs officials are saying vis-a-vis chemical weapons and the, and the history of Canada's involvement. Mm. That I think uh, sort of is important to uh, to bring to light, um, yeah. considering what the what what's you know being set up with potential for a more uh, full scale war uh, attack against Syria. Yeah, and it's like you as you concluded your article, you say uh, that to have any credibility, the country has to say when it, with regard to chemical weapons, do as I do and not just as I say. Uh. For, for sure, and and, and that's and that's a, you know it's a it's a it's a principle that sort of runs throughout Canadian foreign policy of this, this hypocrisy of double standards, and uh, and and it's it's unfortunately it's it's um, you know in the case of chemical weapons I you know I've I've written five books on Canadian foreign policy I've done I've read through hundreds of books on Canadian foreign policy and, and quite honestly um, I, I had very little knowledge until until recently very little knowledge about uh, the Suffield base in uh, in uh, in Alberta, uh, that uh, it's not in any way denied that there was chemical weapons testing taking place. There, in fact, there's a, there's a class action lawsuit by Canadian troops, uh, former you know former soldiers who were uh, poisoned, basically uh, unwillingly, unknowingly uh, were were uh, uh, exposed to some of these weapons. And uh, there's actually a class action lawsuit from from about uh, five years ago that was launched. Uh, so it's not in any way denied that there was widespread chemical weapons testing. Uh, it's just that it's just almost entirely ignored uh, in dominant media. And, you know, when it is mentioned, it's sort of mentioned about how it how it impacted, uh, you know, Canadian, you know, like the lawsuit or how it may have impacted former Canadian soldiers, um, how it was part of the U.S., uh, uh, you know, war machine, um, uh, that's, that's basically, uh, you know, not talked about. And, uh, and uh, and um, you know there's uh, there's many victims around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, of uh, of Canada's role in that enabling uh, the expansion and use of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, chemical weapons. Now, in your uh, the older article, a piece you wrote last week, uh, conservatives' Syria policy is make war and not peace. Um, and reading through it, I, I kind of got the sense that. Uh, the uh, Canada's involvement there has less to do with humanitarian concern than it does with, you know, how can I profit, uh, you know, financially through this, uh, you know, a, a possible war scenario. Um, how, how do you see? How do you see uh, Canada in terms of its posture with regard to, to Syria and some of the players in that region, uh, you know, essentially being dictated more by money than by uh, humanitarian concern. Yeah, I think that one of the important points with regards to Syria, I mean, uh, first of all, it's obviously a devastating situation, uh, terrible humanitarian catastrophe, you know, over 100,000 people dead in over the past two and a half years, a couple million people who are, have, you know, fled the country and, you know, millions more internally displaced. Uh, uh, and, and quite honestly, um, it's not, there's no, uh, obvious, uh, uh, short-term uh, or even maybe medium-term uh, way to uh, to see some sort of really just solution. I think uh, the Syrian people are caught between uh, uh, basically two uh, two bad sides, if you like. Um, 
Uh, but but what is I think uh, clear in the Canadian government's uh, um, uh, policy towards Syria is very serious double standards in terms of uh, what's exacerbated in the conflict. So, for instance, they have uh, criticized repeatedly uh, uh, Iran, Russia, Hezbollah for their involvement uh, on the side of of the Syrian uh, regime, but. They've said nothing about the extensive amounts of billions of dollars in weaponry, uh, uh, cash, other forms of support that the monarchy in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE have delivered to to the rebels. Uh, the role the, the CIA is playing increasingly in in training the rebels in in, in Jordan. And and there's even in the Wall Street Journal on Monday, uh, it was basically a mission that. That the, the the ramping up of Iranian support uh, for the Assad regime is is uh, very closely tied to the the huge amounts of weaponry that are being flowed in from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, and it, lo and behold, the Canadian government is in fact not only are they not saying anything about the the the, the one side's role and exacerbating the suffering and the conflict in, in Syria, Canada is actually selling um, um, billions of dollars in weaponry uh, to, to Saudi Arabia in, in recent years. Uh, there's uh, Canadian companies are <clears throat> involved in a major uh, arms trade, uh, um, uh, biggest arms trade uh, uh, bazaar taking place in the Middle East. Over 25 Canadian companies were involved with the Canadian ambassador in the UAE, uh, um, uh, uh, promoting the, the role of Canadian companies in, in the arms trade uh, um, a few months uh, a few months ago. So you have, uh, uh, I think, a Canadian government that I think for, for they, they haven't they haven't been interestingly enough they haven't been as belligerent on the issue in terms of uh, Syria as as maybe the the British or French government previously. Um, uh, they have been actually a bit more nuanced. They have recognized that the, the rebels are pr- primarily uh, or significantly uh, sort of jihadists who have uh, who have often very sectarian um, and very regressive aims. Um, uh, so there has been some acknowledgement of, 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 of that by the Canadian government, uh, but there has uh, um, uh, certainly... Uh, not been uh, a proper kind of um, uh, policy towards the different regional actors, and uh, and in fact have um, you know uh, exacerbated things by by flowing in weapons to uh, some of the major kind of some of the countries that are the, the major backers of uh, of the rebel groups. Okay, uh, Eve Engler, I think we're probably going to have to leave it there, but uh, thanks for uh, enlightening us uh, a little more about that sort of hidden history of. Uh, Canada's uh, involvement in uh, a lot of this uh, war-making aggression on the world stage. Thank you so much. Thanks, Robert. Eve Engler is a writer and researcher based in Montreal. His latest book is the the new Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World. It really is time to unite. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Starting the first week of October, the Global Research News Hour will air on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Canada at its new time, Fridays at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.